Well, this evening we're going to look at Jeremiah 28. And as I've already been asked uh, off mic why I skipped 27, for the benefit of those who didn't hear that answer, it's because chapter 28 kind of repeats what's in 27, so we won't have to do 27 twice. We just do 28 once. All right, now, um, the first name that we observe there in verse 1 of chapter 28 is the name Zedekiah, king of Judah. What can you tell me about Zedekiah? Besides the fact that he's a king of Judah. Terry? Very good. He is the last king of Judah, correct? And what year would his reign have ended as the last king of Judah? Ben? 586 is correct. And what event occurs in 586, Ben? Deportation. What else? The destruction of the city of Jerusalem and Zedekiah is part of that. Although he does not witness the final burning and dismantling of the city, uh, why is that so? Why is he not an eyewitness to that final destruction of the city? Yes, his eyes were put out. All right, well, let's turn back to 2 Kings 24, and let's actually read the narrative of Zedekiah's history. And as we did last week, we'll just read a couple of verses at a time, and we'll go around until we finish the section which deals with his career. Beginning at verse 16 of 2 Kings 24. Describing the deportation of those in Jerusalem. If you'll notice in verse 15, when Nebuchadnezzar led Jehoiakim away. So beginning with verse 16. Second Kings 24, Second Kings 24, beginning at verse 16, and we'll read two verses at a time. And Ben, may I begin with you? Are you there yet? And all the men of Vela, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the smith, 1,000, all strong and fit for war, and these the king of Babylon brought into exile to Babylon. Then the king of Babylon made his uncle Mataniah king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Now there's the change in name which we've uh, observed before. <clears throat> Lisa, the next two verses. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamachul, and the daughter of Jeremiah. Is that the same Jeremiah as the prophet we're talking about? Anyone? No. No, that is not. 
Okay, this is a different Jeremiah. Libna is another village, so it would be the location of that uh, Jeremiah's uh, birthplace or his native town. Where was our prophet Jeremiah? What was his birthplace? Anathoth. So that's the reason it's not the prophet Jeremiah. Okay, verses 19 and 20. Susan, please. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Right, notice that statement, Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. <clears throat> Uh, we'll want to uh, think about what that means and when it occurred. All right, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 25. I'm going to skip down to you, Robert. We're at 2 Kings 25, 1 and 2. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He engaged outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. And what would the 11th year of Zedekiah be? What year date would that be? Ben? This is 586 B.C., so we can actually date that passage. All right, verses 3 and 4. Loretta, please. Thank you. Verses 5 and 6, Terry. Verses 7 and 8, Scott. And they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. Now, on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, Came to Jerusalem. Verses 9 and 10, Pete. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house of all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around the city. And finally, verses 11 and 12, back to you, Ben, please. The rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the multitude, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. 
Thank you. Now, that is the historical section on the career of King Zedekiah. And you'll notice that it focuses upon the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. So when we come back to Jeremiah 28, verse 1, what year of Zedekiah's reign are we in, according to that text? All right, is it 597? It says in the beginning, but it also goes on to specify the fourth year. So what year would that make it? 593, that's correct. All right, now Ben was indicating uh, the year 597 as the beginning of Zedekiah's reign. How does he come to the throne? Lisa, how does he come to the throne of Judah? Yes. Well, he was the last king, so by progression. Well, who was before him? How how did he come to Jehoiakim? Jehoiakim, not an M, but an N. Okay, and Susan, what can you tell me about Jehoiakim? Oh, I have to remember last week. Um, How did he come to the throne? I don't know. Loretta? I don't know. How did how did Jehoiakim become king of Judah? Terry? Uh, he Jehoiakim with the Kim with the M was Probably assassinated. Okay, so Jehoiakim, his predecessor, probably assassinated. <clears throat> One of the reasons we think that is because of what happened to his body when he died. And what was that, Terry? Uh, he was given a mural's burial, like thrown over the wall. His body was thrown over the wall. So there's an element of contempt there with respect to King Jehoiakim. <clears throat> and Jehoiakim succeeds him. <clears throat> And Robert, can you tell me anything about Jehoiakim after he succeeded Jehoiakim? Uh, What's going on around Jerusalem at this time? Going on around. Didn't he rebel against uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar? Which one? Which Nebuchadnezzar? No, which one rebelled? Who rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar? I think it was Jehoiakim, didn't it? No, no. The, the M guy. The M guy. Yeah, Jehoiakim, which may have been another reason why he was assassinated. Right? <clears throat> in other words, he died when Nebuchadnezzar came and laid siege to Jerusalem in 597. And having died, then Jehoiakim was placed on the throne, uh, in his place, was put on the throne in his place, and what did Jehoiakim do after being placed on the throne? Scott? <coughs> after being placed on the throne? Mm-hmm. Um, well, later, he came out and gave himself with his mother, but that's later. Uh, when, when the, How long later? Oh, let's see. Let's see, it depends on, depends on it was, uh, 
It would have been 597. How many, how many months did he reign? Ben? He reigns three months. Very short time. And why does he go out? Scott, you mentioned that he came out. Why does he come out? Probably so the Babylonians won't destroy the city. So okay, he comes out and surrenders. He and the queen mother, his mother, and some other those with him. And this is in 597 still. And he does it perhaps to placate Nebuchadnezzar's wrath and to preserve Jerusalem from total destruction, a total destruction which does come in 586. This is the second siege of Jerusalem in 597. What was the first siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar? Terry, do you remember that one? Uh, I remember... When Daniel was taken with his three friends and some others. So there's a prophet or a, a prophetic figure taken in the first siege, 605, and that's Daniel. Is there a prophet taken in the second siege in 597, Loretta? Susan, do you know whether there's a prophet taken in 597? Yes, <laughs> yes, there was. It's not entirely fair to ask you about that, but nonetheless, I thought you might have gotten it. Ben, Ezekiel is taken in 597, so that's another way that you can remember uh, these sieges or and the dates, 605 Daniel, 597 Ezekiel, along with Jehoiakim and the Queen Mother and some others in 597. Uh, they are carried off <coughs> into captivity as well. <coughs> All right, so Zedekiah's reign begins in turmoil, doesn't it? In fact, he's the third king on the throne within several months, one of whom has been assassinated or murdered or killed or some other, or perhaps even died uh, in some other way, another of whom has surrendered and been carried off to Babylon to be placed in captivity and, in fact, the last verses of the book of Jeremiah and the last verses of the book of Second Kings will tell you what happened to Jehoiakim in captivity. And you can look that up. It's about two verses at the end of each of those books in order to bring yourself up to speed on what happens to Jehoiakim after he's carried away into Babylonian captivity. I think I mentioned to you that we actually have Babylonian tablets discovered with his name on it from his imprisonment or from his house arrest when he was in captivity in Babylon. All right, so Zedekiah uh, takes the throne with Nebuchadnezzar outside the gate and Nebuchadnezzar installs him. But we read that verse there in 2 Kings uh, 24, the end of 24, that he rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now, the first verse of Jeremiah 28 brings us down to 593, four years after he takes the throne. Has Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar yet? What is the meaning of the reference to Zedekiah's rebellion in 2 Kings 24? Is it referring to something that's happening at this time, that is in 593? Or 
Is it something that's happened between 597 and 593, or is it something that's happening subsequently to 593? And how do you know, or how would we tell? Well, that's kind of a challenging question for you, but the answer is fairly straightforward. Remember that when we read through the 2 Kings 24 to 25 section, I noted in conclusion that the focus in that narrative is upon the collapse of the nation and the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. When did that siege begin? You remember that Second King said that Nebuchadnezzar came in the ninth year of Zedekiah. So that siege began in 588, 588 or 587, and consequently, That two-year siege uh, brought the nation to its knees and to destruction. Well, since the statement in 2 Kings 24 is that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon, and he's telling the story of the destruction of the city and its final collapse, it's very uh, reasonable to suggest that that rebellion of Zedekiah occurs sometime before 588 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar comes for the final time. Keep in mind that Nebuchadnezzar has been troubled by Judah three, two times previously. So the third times, you know, you get three strikes and you're out, and consequently Jerusalem's going to strike out the third time Nebuchadnezzar surrounds the city with his army. He's had enough. He's had enough rebellion. He's had enough turmoil in this small nation, which is the keystone to the trade routes from Africa to Asia. And so he finally brings the matter to a head and to an end when he besieges the city from 588 to 586. So I don't think we look necessarily for another rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar before 588 before Zedekiah's uh, last attempt to uh, throw off Babylonian suzerainty. All right, we'll ask in a moment uh, what it might have been and what might have been behind Zedekiah's attempt to throw off uh, Babylonian uh, superiority. But at this point, uh, we'll just note that this rebellion phrase is uh, uh, coincident with uh, the final siege of Jerusalem, 588-86. Any questions about any of that to this point? Now, you'll notice that I also gave you Second Chronicles 36, and the record there is a little bit different than in Second Kings 24 to 25. Much of the information is duplicated, but there are some variations, so you might want to look that up and see what the differences are. The chronicler has a focus particularly on the corruption of the priesthood, etc., <clears throat> All right, now we have the date in verse 1 of 593. Now, what is the location of the scene or the drama in this chapter? Where, where are we on location here in chapter 28? Anyone? Where in Jerusalem? Where in Jerusalem? In the temple, in the house of the Lord. So, this is occurring, this, this chapter is occurring, at least for the most part, in the temple. So we're on location in Solomon's temple in the last days or the last years of the nation of Judah. Now, I gave you a map because Hananiah, 
who is one of the chief characters in this chapter, is uh, listed as having been from Gabeon, a prophet, or in this case, a false prophet from Gabeon. And if you take a a look at your map, uh, I've also uh, repeated the map I showed you last week or gave you last week. And so uh, reviewing last week's uh, discussion of these locations, uh, there's Anathoth and Jeremiah is on top of it. There is Morasheth Gath and Micah is underneath it. Uh, Who is associated with Kiriath Yarim? Uriah. Very good, Susan. Thank you. From last week's uh, discussion of chapter 26, that was his hometown. So here is Hanani from the uh, city of Gabeon, which is also northwest of Jerusalem. All right, now, in verse 2, the beginning of Hananiah's address to the priests and to the people indicates that... Uh, God, according to Hananiah, is going to break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Now, why does Hananiah use this term, break the yoke of the king of Babylon? Anyone? Yoke is a symbol of servitude. But why here? Why does he pick on yoke? Why does he choose this term? Go ahead, Perry. Wasn't Isaac, uh, Jeremiah wearing a yoke or told you? Yeah, where did you find that? How do you know that? You're right. How do you know that? Uh, Susan is beaming from ear to ear. Chapter 27. <laughs> it's in chapter 27, oh. correct. <laughs> All right, if you turn back to the second verse of chapter 27... You'll notice that this is the last symbolic act of Jeremiah. We've had a number of symbolic acts of Jeremiah, namely burying his linen girdle, his basket of figs, his appearance in the valley of Hinnom or Tophet. And here is this last symbolic action in which God instructs him to make a yoke and put it on his neck. Now, as you notice that second verse of chapter 27, it says, make yourself bonds. That's what my translation, the American Standard, reads. Does anyone have a different word for make yourself bonds and yokes? Is there a variation in any of yours? Straps and yoke bars. Straps and yoke bars. Yoke bars. Okay. The straps is actually a better word than bonds. I understand Bonds meaning something you tie up, but it doesn't quite give the, uh, the, the, the thrust of that word uh, straps because, of course, these are the leather straps by which a yoke would be attached to an animal in harness, either with a one-part yoke or a two-part yoke. There's no way to settle this, <clears throat> 
Uh, we do know from uh, ancient uh, Near Eastern archaeology that there were both types of yoke, that is, a yoke like you see in some pictures of the uh, Western immigrants in Conestoga wagons where they'd have a huge wooden bar on top of the neck of oxen or mules, and then it would be strapped or there'd be uh, an iron collar underneath them. It would be strapped around them at the bottom of the neck. Or sometimes there might be a double yoke, that is, there'd be an upper and lower part, and the two parts of that contraption would be uh, strapped together so that the animal would be in harness. Uh, We're not sure what Jeremiah dawned here, whether it was a two-part or one-part yoke, because the Hebrew word isn't that specific. And since we know from the ancient Near East that it could be either way, uh, then it's possible that uh, Jeremiah wore a two-piece garment or a one-piece yoke garment, (laughs) depending depending upon uh, uh, the nuance. But nonetheless, it would have been strapped around him. And so this is the context for Hananiah's comment that the Lord is going to break the yoke of the king of Babylon. For that yoke that Jeremiah was wearing back in chapter 27 was God's indication that Babylon would place Judah under the yoke, under the yoke of bondage. And here Hananiah is saying God's going to break that yoke. He's going to take that yoke off. In other words, he's challenging Jeremiah's own uh, 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 symbolic act. He's challenging what Jeremiah is presenting and, and, uh, and walking around characterizing as God's message. He's claiming in this second verse that God is saying, I'm going to break that yoke off of, uh, off of uh, Judah by, uh, the, by the Babylonian monarch. All right, now in verse 3, he suggests that within two years, he's going to bring the vessels of the Lord's house back from Babylon. Well, when had these vessels been carried away? What year? 597. Very good. Now, he says in two years they're going to be brought back. Now, this is Hananiah speaking. So what year is he projecting the vessels will be brought back by? 591, because this is 593, according to the first verse of the text. All right. So he's projecting a return within two years, that is, by 591. How will it happen? Well, in verse 4, he's saying not only are the vessels of the temple going to be brought back, who else is going to be brought back? Jeconiah. Who is Jeconiah? Loretta, can you tell me who Jeconiah is? The son of Jehoiakim. Mm-hmm. King of Judah. So, yeah, so... What other name do you know him by? Coniah. Coniah is another one. What other name do you know him by? Shalom? No. That's Jehoahaz. All right, so Jeconiah and Coniah are synonyms. And what's his third name? 
Jehoiakim. Yes, Jehoiakim. So three names for the same individual. And why is uh, Hananiah suggesting that Jehoiakim or Jeconiah is going to come back? What is going through Hananiah's mind that he predicts the return of the king? Tip my hat to Tolkien. He is prophesying a lie. That is correct. But let's think what's in his mind. All right. The lie that he's prophesying is that the king is going to come back. Right now, we're not dealing with whether he is or not. We want to understand why does Hananiah think he's going to come back? Can we can, can we construct a motive for why Hananiah believes Jehoiakim or Jeconiah or Coniah is going to return. What motive might he have, Loretta? What do you think? You have a detective's mind? No, I don't. You don't have a detective's mind? You don't like Sherlock Holmes mysteries or Poirot or you're not good at solving or Perry Mason or something like that. Yes, my wife and I take bets on who's the who's the uh, guilty party before the outcome, and she's usually ninety percent right. She's kind of uncanny about this. Terry, how, how how about you? You have any motive to suggest, Robert? I'm wondering. Uh, he's trying to negate. Uh, Jeremiah's prophecy. That is true, but why is he doing it? What's what's going through his mind? He just doesn't like Jeremiah, and he said, "In your face, Jeremiah, he's going to come back in two years." No. Uh, sounds like a power go, go ahead, Robert. It sounds like a power grab here. Sounds like a power grab. Uh, there may be something to that, but it's more. It, it, it's obvious to me. It's not quite so obvious to you. Ben, you wanted to say something. I was, could, could he have heard that Jeconiah had fallen into favor with Nebuchadnezzar and that Nebuchadnezzar would send him back? Now, that's an interesting suggestion, all right? Uh, <clears throat> knowing that he was being taken care of in his captivity. He may have heard about that. But why would he think that then Nebuchadnezzar would let him come back when there's already Nebuchadnezzar's man on the throne? Babylon would be defeated. Pardon? That Babylon would be defeated. He's thinking that Babylon is going to be defeated as well, so he thinks he's going to break the power of the king of Babylon. But we want to hold that one. We want to hold what Pete suggested here because that's more of a broad p- paradigm. What Hananiah is operating on is from something within the nation of Judah. It's within the culture itself. When he says that Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim may come back, he's playing the spokesman for a particular political group in Jerusalem. It's a group of favorites of Jehoiakim or those who favor him. In other words, there's a party of Jehoiakim still in Jerusalem. And so what he's doing is he's playing the card of speaking to a popular expectation, namely a peace party, a peace party who says, well, there will be peace in Jerusalem, there will be peace in Judah, and Nebuchadnezzar will be broken in power, 
and Jehoiakim will come back and he will assume, reassume the throne of Jerusalem. All right. So because he is advocating for the legitimate king, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah is a kind of usurper king. He's a king that's a puppet of Babylon. So there's a party of people inside Jerusalem that still think Jehoiakim, though he's in exile, is the legitimate king. And let the exiled king return, but he's going to have to return only, he's only going to be able to return if the power of Babylon is broken. And that brings us to the second point, which Pete anticipated with his comment. How does Hananiah imagine that Babylon's power is going to be broken and what may be going on that would suggest to him that Nebuchadnezzar could be defeated. All right, now we're at the year 593. And as I said when I responded to Pete's comment initially, this is a bigger picture issue. This is an international picture issue. This is not just the national context of Jerusalem and Judah, the small picture of a legitimate king in exile. This is bigger. How does he think, how does Hananiah think that it's possible for this mighty army that he has seen surround Jerusalem four years before, 597, how does he think that that mighty army is going to be broken and the Babylonian Empire is going to be brought to its knees? What is happening in the bigger picture to suggest to him that Babylon's end may be nigh? Terry? I'm guessing... No, it's not east of Babylon. It's not the agitation of the Medes and the Persians yet. That's a long way off. It's going to come. It's 70 years off, in fact, almost 70 years off. It's eventually going to bring the Babylonian Empire down in 593, 539, I'm sorry, with uh, Cyrus and the Belshazzar's feast and the invasion of, of Babylon by the Persians. All right, so it's going to happen, but there's something else happening in the international context right now. That is 593 context. All right, what is it? It is Egypt. And what about Egypt? What's going on in Egypt? All right, now the pharaoh of Egypt at this time is a fellow named Semeticus II, or he's abbreviated Samtik II. Now, he's an Egyptian king. And one of the first things he does when he takes the throne in 595 is he goes up the Nile. And when you go up the Nile, you're going towards Nubia and Cush. Right? In the Old Testament, Nubia and Cush are the equivalent of the Sudan and Ethiopia. Now, the black Sudanese and Ethiopians have always been a problem for the Egyptians. In fact, there was a whole dynasty of them during the Old Testament period, and one of their most famous kings was Tirhaka, who's mentioned in the Book of Kings. Well, Samtik wants, wants it for all to deal with the black Africans, with the Nubians and the Kushites. And so he takes his army up the Nile to the first cataract, and he destroys the Nubian army. And that is the end of all future incursion from black Africa into Egypt at this time in ancient history. In other words, Samtik carries on a tremendous campaign of conquest over the Nubians and the Kushites in the southern portion of his kingdom, and he secures the southern boundaries of France. Having done that, and he did this in 593, 
He went up the Nile in 593, crushed the enemy. Having done that, in 592, he marches his army in triumph. Take your map that you have in your packet. He takes his army and marches out of Egypt right up along the coast of Palestine. You see where the name Philistines is written? That's where his army went. He marched all the way up to Tyre and Zidon, up in Lebanon. He did that in 592. And he did it as a display of his glory and his power. Robert, power play. But it's not a power play from Hananiah. He's capturing a potential power play. All right. Is it conceivable that the agitation in Egypt was known to Hananiah and he therefore anticipated or attempted to project the political outcome of this triumphal march, which was beginning in Egypt, would make its way up the Palestinian coast in great display of authority. And incidentally, when Samtik did that in 592, Nebuchadnezzar never moved a muscle. Babylon never responded. In other words, Samtik and Egypt got away with that display in 592. All right, now, we're at 593 in the text. Is all of this being agitated, is all this beginning to spill over into international uh, correspondence? And in fact, Hananiah is aware of this turmoil in Egypt, and he's projecting or anticipating the next move. This is a suggestion which would explain why he would think that Nebuchadnezzar's power would be broken. Because there's another equally uh, powerful international uh, competitor on the horizon, namely the Egyptians under this king who could deal with Nebuchadnezzar and break the power of Babylon and therefore bring Jehoiakim back to Jerusalem. Now, I grant you that this is speculation on my part, but it is not idle speculation. It gives us a kind of broader historical and political context for understanding what is in Hananiah's mind. Lisa pointed out that he's a false prophet. So what is he doing? He's being opportunistic. He's attempting to judge something in the culture or on the horizon or even the international scene and to project something future out of it. He's not speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking by the inspiration of his cultural context or political context. In other words, he's a political opportunist. He'd make a great lobbyist in Washington, D.C. All right. You understand my point. If we're looking then for uh, motives which could account for why this man would stick his head out on the limb and uh, and project this kind of thing, this is a likely explanation, although it's not an infallible or perfect explanation for why he says what he says in verse 4. Any questions that you may have about it? I'll admit it is speculation on my part, but I'm looking outside of Jerusalem for a broader context for what may stimulate Hananiah to make such an absurd statement, for it is an absurdity. Even at face value, it's an absurdity. Who's going to break Nebuchadnezzar? Who's going to bring Nebuchadnezzar down? Well, if he's aware of what Egypt is doing, what's percolating in Egypt, it's possible, you see, that he'll project that into the future. Like the dispensationalist from Russia. Yes. (laughs) And and diehards like they are, some of them are still holding on to it. (laughs) All right, now... We've already noted that Hananiah is a false prophet, as Lisa pointed out. 
What is he, what is he doing here in this uh, uh, section? Well, let's turn back to chapter 22 for a moment. And let's take a look at verses 26 and 27. Loretta, I'm going to ask you to read verses 26 and 27 of Jeremiah 22 so we can have them before us, please. 26 and 27? Correct. I shall hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. Now, who is this you and his mother? <coughs> Have we talked tonight about any you and his mother? Whoa! Yes, 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 but uh, Loretta is still on the floor. Yes, you apologize to her, don't apologize. <laughs> Who did we talk about earlier, Loretta, that had a mother? What he said. Which was what? <laughs> Jehoiakim. right. And his mother, when they came out from uh, the siege, in 597. So if you look backwards in verse 24 of Jeremiah 22, which you have open before you, notice Coniah, the name Coniah. So there is Jehoiakim's other name, Jeconiah, Coniah, and Jehoiakim. So this passage here in Jeremiah 22, 26, and 27 is saying what? He is saying that Jehoiakim is not going to return to Judah or Jerusalem. He's going to die in the country where he is taken, which is what? Babylon. He's going to die in Babylon. What does Hananiah say here in chapter 28? He's not going to die. He's not going to die. He's going to bring him back. Who's telling the truth? Jeremiah is telling the truth. So what Hananiah is doing here is blatantly contradicting the prophecy of Jeremiah in chapter 22. In other words, this is a bold and bald-faced lie. He is standing in the temple, even as Jeremiah stood in the temple to speak this prophecy. He is standing in the temple and calling Jeremiah a liar. This is how serious this conflict is. But from the 23rd chapter of Jeremiah, we've had this conflict between true and false prophets, good and bad baskets of figs, etc., We've seen this imagery building. We've seen the ripples of this imagery in chapter 26. Now we've got another installment of this ongoing rippling narrative of the interface between that which is genuine prophecy and that which is fallacious and lying prophecy. All right, now in verse 5, Jeremiah now speaks to Hananiah. Now, we need to keep in mind that Hananiah is not alone. In this context, verse 1, he is in the presence of the priests and all the people. But in chapter 26, you'll notice that there is another group that's involved in this uh, debate over true and false prophecy. And in verses 7 and 11, which we observed last week, there is a group of prophets in Jerusalem who is also opposed to Jeremiah. So Jeremiah with is arrayed against Hananiah, a false prophet, a school of false prophets, chapter 26, a group of priests who are also 
false teachers and the people who are sympathetic to them. In other words, there's a great deal of opposition to Jeremiah. Why? Why is there this school of false prophets? Why is there this leader of the false prophets, Hananiah? Why are the people, uh, why are the priests listening to these false prophets? Why are the people listening to the priests and the false prophets? Why? Terry? Well, they haven't really repented in their, they, they want to hear what they want to hear. And what do they want to hear? They want to hear that that Jerusalem's going to be okay. Yes, that's exactly what they want to hear. They want to hear about the invulnerability of the city. They want to hear about the fact that the city belongs to God and it has this kind of protection over it because it's God's temple city. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is here, chapter 7. All right, so this motif keeps playing itself over and over again, which is one of the reasons the false prophets can capitalize on it. And the people will listen. They do not want to hear the story of the destruction of the city. They do not want to hear that their culture is going to come down. They do not want to hear that their politicians and their priests and their leaders are corrupt and, and, and depraved, as a matter of fact. They don't want to hear it. They want to hear only the good news. They, only want, they want to hear the things that they want to hear. And so in their refusal, they will listen to the false prophecy of Hananiah and the false school of prophets and even the false priesthood or the group of false priests that practice idolatry even in the temple. All right, now the location of Jeremiah in responding to Hananiah, if you notice from the fifth verse, is also what Loretta pointed out with respect to Hananiah himself. The uh, location is in the temple. So this exchange between the true prophet and the false is taking place in the house of the Lord, in the precincts of the temple of the Lord God Almighty. Any questions to this point? All right, well then, it's time for your break, so uh, stretch your legs. Now we're up to verse 6. And this interesting statement of Jeremiah... Let me raise your eyebrows a little bit. He says, Amen, may the Lord do so. May the Lord confirm your words which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all the exiles from Babylon to this place. What's Jeremiah doing here? Are you agreeing with Hananiah? Satire. Satire? What were you going to say, Ben? Sarcasm. Sarcasm, yes. <laughs> Ridicule. He's actually uh, uh, playing the devil's advocate here, assuming it. But notice how the tune, the tone changes in verse 7. Yet hear now this word which I am about to speak. So that places the message or the language of verse 6 in relief. It's, it's not an agreement. It's a ridicule of the false prophet. In verse 8, <clears throat> Jeremiah then goes on to talk about prophets who were before him. Now from uh, last week, can uh, you tell, uh, can you tell me the name of any prophet who was before him, who was mentioned there in chapter 26. Uriah, Micah. Micah would have been before him, and you mentioned Uriah. Was Uriah before him, or was he... He is a contemporary, correct. So, from last week's, 
chapter, we know that Jeremiah uh, also is aware of the prophet Micah, who precedes him in the 8th century B.C., and Uriah, one of his own contemporaries in the 7th century B.C. Now, uh, also reviewing last week, who's another 8th century B.C. prophet, a contemporary of Micah? Isaiah would be the other great 8th century B.C. prophet. And who else might be contemporaries of Jeremiah here in the 7th century B.C. besides Uriah? What writing prophets might be contemporaries? Zephaniah. Zephaniah would be one. Ezekiel. Ezekiel, yes. Habakkuk. Habakkuk, yes. Uh, Ezekiel more a 6th century than 7th century, but nonetheless... Uh, he is in the same era. All right. So uh, the prophets that uh, Jeremiah is uh, looking back to are the prophets of the 8th century, uh, also looking to the prophets who are contemporaneous with him or just slightly prior to him, preceding him, perhaps even the prophet Nahum, uh, who specifically is focusing on the destruction of Assyria and the rise of Babylon in 612, and and not focused at all on uh, Jerusalem and Judah, as Jeremiah and Zephaniah and uh, uh, Habakkuk are. Now, in verse 9, we have this uh, pivotal statement of Jeremiah, the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then that prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Now, this is one of the reasons that I selected the term peace party when I was discussing verse 4 above. Uh, This peace that Jeremiah is speaking of is the peace that Hananiah is projecting, namely the fact that Jerusalem will have peace and Jehoiakim will return. So that suggests a a group of people in the city that had a vested interest in the ongoing peace of the city, that it would not be destroyed, that that Babylon, in fact, would be broken and destroyed, and Jehoiakim would come back in triumph. In verse 10, we have the yoke again, but now we have a rather dramatic action uh, because Hananiah breaks that yoke from the neck of the prophet Jeremiah. All right, so the yoke that Jeremiah uh, attaches to himself and wears around Jerusalem in chapter 27 is now broken by Hananiah in a a fit of anger and uh, uh, in order to show that uh, Jeremiah is the false prophet and Hananiah is the true prophet. He's challenging Jeremiah's uh, symbolic prophetic action and he's providing his own a symbolic prophetic action. But Jeremiah then addresses uh, Hananiah in verse 11, and the yoke returns. Only this time, the yoke is going to be a yoke of iron. And that means that what Jeremiah had worn as a yoke was a wooden yoke with leather or cloth straps. But this yoke is going to be an iron yoke, unbreakable, as verse 13 indicates, more uh, rigorous and rigid uh, than the wooden yoke. All right, now in verse 14, Jeremiah makes a statement about Nebuchadnezzar, namely, 
that Nebuchadnezzar is going to place this iron yoke upon the neck of Judah and Jerusalem, and they will serve him. And then he adds at the end of that 14th verse, I have also given him, that is given to Nebuchadnezzar, the beasts of the field. Beasts of the field. This statement is made also in verse 6 of chapter 27. Uh, I have given these lands to Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, and I have given him the wild animals of the field to serve him. Strange statement. Why would God say that he's going to give Nebuchadnezzar the beasts or the wild animals of the field as well as the nation of Jerusalem? Robert? Robert? So the field is the means of production for food. Okay. So I'm going to give him, I'm going to give him the uh, supermarket as well as, as a city. Pete, you were going to say something? Yeah, and he's going to uh, have the land as a desolate land, and, uh, and therefore uh, there's not going to be civilization there like there was. It's going to be reduced civilization. Although the civilization doesn't disappear, it just becomes reduced to poverty. Keep in mind that there's going to be a governor placed over this region when the majority of the deportees are taken. But they're going to be the poor of the land, as we read in Second Kings 25, that you're going to leave the poor to dress the vines and so on. So there's going to be some maintenance there. Now, the, the use here of the beast of the field is that this is a comprehensive destruction. In other words... Nebuchadnezzar is going to destroy man and beast. Thorough destruction of the land, perhaps to take it away for purposes of feeding his own army. But nonetheless, the subjection of the beast of the field is an indication that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be king of the whole shebang, you know, the whole arena, human and animal. So it's a term of comprehension. All right, now in verse 15... Jeremiah makes a final declaration about the role and status of Hananiah. He declares quite unequivocally that God has not sent him. He is a false prophet and he is a liar and seducing the people with his lies. Jeremiah is, in other words, drawing a line in the sand and saying, Hananiah, you are not preaching the word of God, you are contradicting the word of God. And because of that, verse 16, you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. Now, this term, rebellion against the Lord, is a phrase that occurs in the famous 18th chapter of Deuteronomy, in which the test of a true prophet is listed. It's very similar to what uh, is said in verse 9, When the prophet's words come to pass here in Jeremiah 28, then you know that he is a true prophet. And if not, then he is a false prophet and has subjected or suborned rebellion against God's people or God himself. So this phrase, you have counseled rebellion, is a telltale phrase of a label that is placed upon a false prophet, and it is most severe because in Deuteronomy 18, a false prophet may be put to death. Capital punishment may be executed upon him. And in fact, Hananiah dies, even as Jeremiah predicts. You are going to die because you have counseled rebellion. 
He's not going to be executed, but he is going to die. Now, how soon does he die? Let's take a look at verse verse 3 in comparison with verse 17 here in chapter 28. In verse 3, Hananiah had projected that within two years, uh, this would all come to pass. And um, I'm not finding, oh, it's in verse 1. When he appears in verse 1, what month of the year is it? It's the fifth month, which in the Jewish calendar would be July and August. And when does he die? Verse 17. In the seventh month. He dies two months later, which is a fulfillment of of the projection that he ironically places in uh, verse 3, two years, and he dies in two months. That's the equivalence that I was pointing out there in your outline. And the seventh month in the Jewish calendar is September or October. So Hananiah loses his life as a result of his deceitful prophecy. The false prophet receives the fruit of his false witness. Now, from the standpoint of structure, this chapter has an interesting pattern and, in fact, in Uh, and contains an inclusio. Now, we've talked about inclusios before, and I'll let you uh, look at the text and see if you can point it out. And if you have it, just uh, shout it out. It's the same year and same year. Very good. All right. Loretta has half of it. That's only 50% grade. That's a good grade, but it's not a passing grade. All right. Loretta has noted in verse 1 the phrase same year, which also occurs in verse 17. That is precise duplication in the Hebrew text. Very good. All right. But I said that's only 50% of the inclusio. Hananiah the prophet, that is correct. You notice that also in verse 1, the name of the prophet is given and his title, or his ostensible title. All right, now an inclusio is in fact a bracket around the entire section or the entire unit. This This drama of chapter 28 is bracketed by this inclusio and folded in between the outer limits of the inclusio is the internal drama. That is the drama of the exchange that occurs between the two that carries on the central focus of this text, which is a true prophet versus a false. Now, in between the uh, frame of the inclusio, the outer frame, which is the inclusio, there are symmetries within this chapter which are quite interesting. All right, you have verses 1 and 17 under symmetries, and that's the inclusio, and you can make your notes there if you wish about what we put on the board, the specific terms of that inclusio. But now we're going to look at the next level of symmetry in the structure of the chapter, 
namely verse 5 and verse 15. Now when I say symmetry, notice that I'm looking for parallelism. I'm looking for something that is symmetrically duplicated. Do you see that in 5 and 15? Go ahead, Loretta. You're doing well. The prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah. Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet. Very good. All right. Now, the only problem with what Loretta read was that the translators of the English version that she is reading from have changed the order of the Hebrew text. So I'm going to give you what Loretta uh, pointed out, and here she gets 100% because she got both of them. She has an A plus, Loretta. <laughs> if you keep at this stuff, you see your grade goes up. All right. In the Hebrew text, the order in verse 5 is Jeremiah the prophet, and the order is Hananiah the prophet. That is precisely the order of the Hebrew text in verse 15. Jeremiah the prophet and Hananiah the prophet. They are exactly duplicated, perfectly symmetrical. All right, now in a moment I want to talk about why they are there and what the point of it is. But I want to go inside then that smaller bracket that connects 5 and 15 symmetrically to notice verse 6 and verse 11. Once again, you're looking for symmetries. Verses 6 and 11, do you see it? Loretta, don't disappoint me now. <laughs> you're working too hard. Yep. Start at the end of verse 11 and look for something that is similar in verse 6. Okay. Yes. <clears throat> now, once again... The order of the Hebrew is Jeremiah the prophet in both of those instances. So the Hebrew text has Jeremiah first and prophet second in 6 and 11. Which leaves verses 10 and 12, which are also symmetrical. The last element of symmetry in within the boundaries of the inclusio. What do you see there? Parallel or duplicate in 10 and 12? Hananiah the prophet. You're only doing 50%. And Jeremiah the prophet. And the order in 10 and 12 is Hananiah the prophet, Jeremiah the prophet. Once again, Hananiah the prophet in 12 and Jeremiah the prophet in 12. All right. Now, what is going on? What's the method to my madness in looking for these symmetries? You'll notice that the inclusio encapsulates the whole. We mentioned that the inclusio holds in the drama of the narrative. There's a narrative here as well as a discussion of true and false prophecy. But that is precisely what it is, what is at issue between verses 5 and 15. Namely, those two verses which are exactly parallel in terms of the personalities is a framing antithesis. <clears throat> that section frames the antithesis between 5 and 15 in terms of the opposition between the false prophet and the true prophet. The false prophet has the entree at the beginning. He speaks... <clears throat> 
in verses 1 to 5. And notice that he speaks of life and not death. When we come to verse 15, we have the prophet Jeremiah, who is the antithesis of Hananiah. And what is he speaking in verse 15 and following? Notice, I said this is an antithetical paradigm. This is an antithetical symmetry. What's Jeremiah speaking in verse 15 and following? Death. And not life. Because, of course, Jeremiah is speaking death instead of life that Hananiah is projecting and... He is speaking life for the remnant and not death after the restoration. The reason that we have this broad inclusio is to focus down upon this symmetrical antithesis between the the opposition between the message of the false prophet and the true. And that message is ratified in the death of Hananiah himself. Notice, at the end of chapter 26, a true prophet dies and is a mirror of the death of the nation. Uriah is murdered by Jehoiakim, and he is a reflection of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the death of the nation. Hananiah takes the opposite tack. He is projecting as a ostensibly true prophet that the nation is not going to die. The nation is going to live. And at the end of chapter 28, we have the death of a false prophet. Now, once again, a mirror of the death of the nation. So in this rippling narrative of this drama between true and false prophecy, what we have is... A a case in which Uriah demonstrates the death of the nation, even though he's projecting the truth of God's revelation. In chapter 28, we have the death of a false prophet, Hananiah, who is also who is projecting the life of the nation when he should be himself projecting the truth of the death of the nation. Confirmation then of the truth of Jeremiah's prophecy is verified not only through the unfortunate death of Uriah, but also through the just death of Hananiah. This nation is not going to survive. This nation, like Hananiah, is going to die. This nation is going to be destroyed because of its iniquity. Well, there's a broader pattern that we need to reflect upon here. We're in the center of the contest or conflict between true and false prophets. The focus of this contest or the focus of this discussion is the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. 
in 586 B.C. Following the destruction of Jerusalem, there will be a restoration of the exiles, which will then be succeeded by a cessation of prophecy for 400 years. All right, now notice the pattern. The pattern is that the protological Jeremiah, who is the prophet, delivering the message of the destruction of Jerusalem of 586, projects beyond that the restoration of the exiles, and then into the history of redemption comes a period of no revelation. Revelation ceases. On the other side of the drama of the judgment prophecy and the destruction of Jerusalem 586, there comes a cessation of God's voice and his miracles. He does not intervene in history for over 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. 400 years of silence, 400 years of no word from God, 400 years of cessation of prophecy and miracle and supernatural act. Let us turn now to the eschatological Jeremiah. What prophecy does he utter? Who is the eschatological Jeremiah? Susan, who's the eschatological Jeremiah? Jesus, Matthew 16. He is, in fact, called by his contemporaries, Are you, Jeremiah, alive from the dead? So, the protological means first, for your interest, for your help, Susan, you haven't heard this vocabulary, protological from first, protos Adam in the Greek, in 1 Corinthians 15, the first Adam, eschatological Adam, Adam, the last Adam, eschatos Adam, okay. So, protological means first, Jeremiah, I mean the Jeremiah of history, eschatological the uh, Jeremiah that Jesus is supposed to be, that is the last Jeremiah. So we'll place the two in tandem. And what prophecy does the eschatological Jeremiah, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, what does he make? Anyone? This is symmetrical. Final judgment. Pardon? Final judgment. No. Symmetrical. New Jerusalem. No. Destruction of Jerusalem. Destruction of Jerusalem. What year? 70 AD. Is there a restoration after the destruction of Jerusalem? Pardon? No. There is no restoration. There is no restoration. There's dispersion. In fact, the Christians in Jerusalem flee in 70 A.D. Why? Because there's no return to the land. There's no return to the city of Jerusalem. In this phase of the history of redemption, it is the dispersion to the nations. 
beyond Jerusalem and Palestine. And after 70 AD, cessation of prophecy and miracle, whether there be prophecy, it shall pass away, whether there be tongues, they shall cease. This is the end of Revelation after 70 AD. All right, now my point in suggesting this paradigm is to observe that there are previous periods of the cessation of revelation, miracle, and supernatural intervention by God. The argument then about the cessation of the charismata and miracles and prophetic gifts in the New Testament age has already been anticipated by a parallel pattern in the history of redemption in the old, between the Old Testament and the New. In other words, there is a precedent here for what happens here. And this happens here because the Gentiles have now been brought into the harvest of this message. And therefore, this message, having been recorded, having been inscripturated, there is no need for any further prophecy, miracle, or supernatural tongues or signs. You don't have to agree with it, but you have to come to grips with it. Because it is a schematic way of justifying what the Westminster Confession teaches and what all Reformed theology has taught ever since the Protestant Reformation, when the Reformers, particularly the Calvinists, realized that the revelation that was being claimed by the Roman Catholic Church had to be stopped. They had to have an answer for why the Pope wasn't speaking new revelations and why there weren't new revelations coming into the Roman Catholic Church by way of tradition, etc., etc. How do we stop this? How do we stop this claim? We stop it by the fact that the New Testament itself indicates that those former ways of God revealing himself have now ceased, to quote the Westminster Confession. This is how you encounter the charismatic movement, how you encounter those who are continually looking for miraculous signs and gifts, etc., those who are talking about miracles as if they're common as spaghetti on your plate, so that miracle now doesn't mean anything anymore. It doesn't mean resurrection of a four-day-old dead body. It doesn't mean Jesus walking on water. It doesn't mean Jesus raising a little girl that's been dead for a few days. No, a miracle now means a baby's born or somebody gets better from surgery or whatever. Those aren't miracles. Those are ordinary events. They are providential blessings. We're not going to deny that. And we're going to pray for the good of those, of those situations and, and ask God to bless those means that are placed in, in, at, at the disposal of people through doctors, nurses, and other things, but we're not going to claim ongoing miraculous events because this pattern hinges upon the history of Jerusalem and its place in the history of redemption. It is not accidental that both the first and second Jeremiah have keyed the central characteristic prophecy of their credibility on the destruction of Jerusalem. And following that destruction, 
the, uh, the pattern of God's acting with his people by bringing his Old Testament people back to the land so that they might be ready for the dispersion into the realm of the Gentiles is be the, that, that is being laid in place. And once it is accomplished, it will not be need, it will not be, it will not be repeated. There will be no necessity to repeat it so that the success, the cessation that is anticipated here for 400 years now becomes a cessation which is 2,000 years old. Well, food for your thoughts. Any questions or comments? I hope it is. It was helpful to me when I thought about it, which doesn't make it right, but I think it's helpful to see this broader pattern. And that pattern is at the center, you see, of this debate or this contest, this conflict, this confrontation between Hananiah and Jeremiah here in chapter 28. This is a broader redemptive historical paradigm than just this. He wears the yoke, he breaks the yoke, he dies, Jeremiah lives. Jeremiah's life is an anticipation of the life of his eschatological successor. Any other questions? Let's close in prayer then. Our gracious Lord, we thank you that we have the revelation of your word recorded in the scriptures. These pages rich in truth and in wonder and in grace. Rich in the Lord Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Lord, We thank you that what Jeremiah so faithfully spoke because you gave it to him. We can read and understand and be drawn into the wonder of your word, the wonder of your grace, the wonder of your love for your people. We who are of the dispersion of the nations, we who are the seed of Abraham to the Gentile harvest, we who have come in these last days, through that eschatological Jeremiah to believe upon your grace and your glory. So we bless you for this time with your truth and we pray that we may hear the truth from those who bear witness to it in our day. And to that end, Lord, bless the servants of your truth, both in the churches that we love And beyond in the Christian world, may they be courageous. May they point to Christ in all that they do and say, may they bear witness with faithfulness to the judgment that is there and to the grace and glory that follows. And we ask this for Jesus' sake humbly thanking you for his fulfillment of the judgment and the grace of life. Amen.